Praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you don't find it strange that this morning we're not uh, focusing on uh, uh, our Lord's triumphal entry. It would be very appropriate for us to do that. And strange enough, however, I do think that that occasion of our Lord's entry into Jerusalem serves something as of a backdrop for what we're seeing here in this letter that Christ commanded John to write to the, to the Ephesian church. On that day when Christ entered into Jerusalem, you remember, it was a day of great excitement. Uh, there was much by way of a, a looking forward to the, the Lord Jesus Christ coming as the, the promised one of Israel. There was a sense in which this was the high point of his earthly ministry. There was much, we might say, by way of indication of outward love, wasn't there? But within one short week, that outward love showed, proved itself to be non-existent. There was no love at all. Well, this idea of love for Christ and this idea of the genuineness of love is one of the important things that as Christians we must deal with throughout our entire life. And the reason why I say that is because our Lord Jesus Christ himself, if I can say it this way, takes specific notice of our love. He knows the degree of love that we have. He knows the genuineness of our love. He knows if there is anything stealing away our love for him. He commends us for that love that is given to him truly. And what I want to do in this passage of Scripture as we are continuing through our, our, our exposition of the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, I want to take a look here as we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, as, as it has been read to us. And I want to consider this epistle that our Lord Jesus Christ writes to the Ephesian church. In this epistle, what we will see is essentially this, that our Lord Jesus Christ, as I said before, makes it very clear that any declension of love that we have for him is a serious matter. Any declension of love that we have for Christ is a serious matter. He observes this. He sees this. He knows, again, the measures of our love for him. And therefore, because of that, I want to present this passage of Scripture to you along three lines. I want, I want you to see how our Lord comes to this church and he manifests himself in a specific character to this church. He refers to himself as the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the candlesticks. In other words, he presents himself in a particular character which shows something of his shepherding heart, keeping and watching, something of the security that he has for his churches, holding the seven stars in his hand, something by way of his examination of the churches, walking among them. So we'll take a look at the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we'll do is we'll take a look at our Lord's condition, the, I'm sorry, the, uh, our Lord's uh, setting forth the condition of the church. He states the condition of the church very properly, very well. He lets us know, again, that the condition of this church was manifold. And what I mean by that is this. There were good things about this church, and there was something that was almost fatal. Not quite, but very, very serious. And so we're going to take a look at how our Lord both, how our Lord both commends this church and how he critiques this church. And there'll be much to learn in that. And then thirdly, although I do think we'll probably get to this next week rather than this week, we will take a look at our Lord's counsel to the church. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ not only examines the church, he not only knows all the particulars of the church, he knows the degrees of love that are there or that are not there, but our Lord Jesus Christ always gives counsel. He is always calling the soul back to himself. He is always seeking to gather in his sheep. He is always seeking to strengthen that which seems to be weakened. He is never quenching the smoking flax or, or breaking the bruised reed. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that our Lord Jesus Christ functions in this way? Aren't you glad that our Lord Jesus Christ again draws us to himself? And so what I want to do is, as, as I said before, I want to take a look at this passage of scripture along those following lines. <clears throat> now, you might... Uh, realize from the overall teaching of Scripture that our love for Jesus Christ is really an essential matter. There's a sense in which we rightly talk about the importance of faith, the priority of faith. We rightly stress, especially in this church, the necessity and the, and, and the centrality of that great doctrine of being justified by faith alone. And we proclaim it, we defend it, we make a case for it. And yet at the same time, we must understand how vitally important our love is for the Lord Jesus Christ. Your personal love for Christ is not something that should be absent from your expression of faith towards Him. In other words, your expression of faith is not merely just a set of religious ideas that you adhere to. It's not merely this idea that, uh, that Jesus Christ is presented as this historical person who you believe uh, actually existed and who lived in a certain way. 
No, your faith for the Lord Jesus Christ involves much by way of love, and I'll say it this way, even affection. Love, again, that in a very real way can be sensed. Love in a very real way that our Lord measures. And so this idea of love is vital. We see this in a number of places in Scripture in general. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. You remember what Peter says there? Whom having not seen, you love, and whom though now you see him not, yet, re- yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, do you see what the love of Christ does for the soul? It elevates the soul. It excites the soul. And so again, whom having not seen, ye love. Is that your case here today? And while I would always press upon you the necessity to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you remember the great passage from Acts 16. Men, what must, what must we do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But I'm asking here this morning about your love. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Though you've never seen him, is there this excitement? Is there this warmth in your heart for Jesus Christ? Yes, I'm going there. Is there this emotional element of your love for Christ? And I know the whole idea of emotional love can really be uh, uh, mishandled. But there is a sense in which this is what we see here in the pages of Scripture. Another passage of Scripture that brings before us uh, the necessity of our love for Christ is something of a a challenging passage. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, uh, the Apostle Paul closes out uh, that, uh, that epistle with these words. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, let him be anathema. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ... In one sense, Paul is making love the standard of our Christian identity. And so this morning, do you and I, do we have love for Jesus Christ? And I would expect every one of us here to say yes, even though we have visitors and I don't know you. I would hope and pray you're here for a reason. And part of that reason, I'm sure, is because you love Jesus Christ. But I ask you the question, is that love waning? What is the degree of that love? What is the condition of that love? You see, Jesus Christ knows and he examines that. One more passage of Scripture, and we'll probably come back to this passage of Scripture later on. It's found in the book of Ephesians. In one sense, we can say this. There are two epistles to the Ephesians in the, book of, in the, in the Bible. The first is, again, the one that we know is the, is the, is the uh, epistle to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. The second is this one that Jesus Christ gave to John to write to the, to the church at Ephesus. And in that church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul closes out that great epistle with these words... Grace be, grace be to all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Oh, grace be to those who love Christ in, 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 with sincerity. There is, no, there is no hypocritical love there. There is nothing by way of just a show. There is genuine love. And I think there's something to be noticed here. Grace be to those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. There is something in which, there's something in which love for Christ is a, is a means of grace. Love for Christ is, a, is, a, is, is, is one of the ways in which, uh, in which God increases, again, the, the, the experience of grace in our hearts. Oh, do you love? Do I love Jesus Christ this morning the way that we ought? And so we're going to take a look at this idea of love for Christ. This reminds us of uh, something that we've tried to touch on before as we've been developing this, this series in the book of Revelation. That when we come to these seven churches, these churches were not, only, are not, were not only historical churches, but in one sense, these churches are also representative churches. The character qualities of these churches uh, we find in all churches throughout all of history. There's a sense in which every church will be, have a mixture of that which is positive and that which is negative, not so positive. There will be churches, again, that are, that, are, that, are, that are very strong, again, by way of the work of grace within them, and they're following the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are other churches, again, that sadly are very weak and almost at the point of, of, of being extinct. And so, again, these seven letters and what we're going to learn here today has, is, is appropriate to our day as well. And this was one of the reasons why we started this series on the book of Revelation. It's not so much to know about the future. Many look into the book of Revelation and they try to discern the future. That's not my intent. My intent, however, my intent in in, in reality is to give us instruction on how to live now. How to live in a day and age in which we see so many things going on. We see great shifts in culture. How do we live? We see great uncertainty in front of us. How do we live? We see great immoralities increasing. How do we live? We see defections across professing churches. How do we live? I'm saying to you, the way that we live in in this day is the way that Christ instructed the Ephesians to live in that day. 
And so what we'll do is we'll take a look then at how our Lord Jesus Christ lays out before this church, again, their condition, and then that, well, how he commends them, and then how he offers critique to them. But the first thing I want you to consider with me is the character of Christ as it's presented in this passage of Scripture. Look here at, uh, at uh, Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and following. I'll be reading from the King James here. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 and following. Uh, we read, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works. And we'll stop there. The first thing I want you to see here is, once again, our Lord Jesus Christ has presented himself to this church by way of a particular character. And this character has already been revealed to us earlier in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, our Lord Jesus Christ makes mention of the fact that, that he has the seven stars in his hands. And in this passage of scripture, the word that, he, that is used there for, for holding is a stronger word, word than just having. And there's a sense in which we are seeing the security of the church in the hand of Jesus Christ. We're seeing the sovereignty of Christ over the church. We're seeing the control of Christ over his churches. And again, it's an encouraging thing to see. But we have to say something about both the angel of the church and the church at Ephesus itself. And let me say this, starting with the angel. We come back to this question, who is the angel? You remember how we, how we entered into this discussion uh, last week. We said that whenever we see this terminology here in the book of Revelation, some commentators believe that it's a reference to an actual angel that had responsibility for local congregations. And you might remember that I said that I really don't see this passage of Scripture uh, teaching that. Uh, there are a number of reasons for that, some of which are found in the text itself. There are criticisms leveled against this angel, and I don't think that it would be uh, uh, something that we would see consistent with the ministry of angels in that way. The, the, the second thing, the second way in which this uh, term is understood, you might remember, is that this was a reference to the messengers that were coming to John from the various churches. But also, not only a, the messengers in the sense of just delivering a message, but also a messenger was the, the messenger was one who had responsibility and accountability in that church. And it's very interesting to note that while our Lord Jesus Christ is writing or, or, or is dictating this letter to John for the church at Ephesus, he is doing it through the angel or the minister or the pastor. And much of what is said by way of either commendation or critique in this passage of scripture is directed yes to the church, but also to the minister. And there's a sense in which the Lord Jesus Christ, when he mentions the things that are commendable, that's what that pastor of the church was doing. He was functioning in the way that Christ called him to function. But at the same time, by way of that critique, we see that there was also a critique that was leveled at that minister. It's very interesting that both the minister and the, and, the, and the church had a particular characteristic that our Lord Jesus Christ was directing himself towards. And this characteristic of the congregation, in a very real way, reflected the character of the minister that was there. The importance, again, and the need for prayer for your minister, for your preacher, for your pastor, for pastors in general, those of you who are visiting. Your pastor needs your prayers. And so, again, this idea, this letter to the angel at the church at Ephesus. That brings us to the church at Ephesus. You probably are familiar with the fact that Ephesus was a very important church. It was a church that was greatly blessed on a number of, account, on a number of accounts. Some of the greatest men on the pages of the New Testament ministered there. Of course, you know how that Paul founded the church there in Acts chapter 19. What a wonderful, what a wonderful introduction this city of Ephesus had to the gospel. It was attended by great miraculous uh, works. It was attended by the ministry of the Spirit of God. It was attended by way of the power of the Word of God prevailing over the mindset of the day. Read that all through Acts chapter 19, I think verses 1 through 20. The ministry at Ephesus, again, was just a phenomenal thing to see. It broke, all, it broke into the scene with great, with, 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 with great effect. And so again, when I think of our Lord Jesus Christ saying to this church, you've left your first love, were they leaving off something of the greatness of how the, the gospel impacted them at first? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The way the gospel impacted them and us at first. We'll get to that here shortly. So this church at Ephesus had just great leadership there, we might say. Paul ministered there for three years. Timothy was a pastor there. 
This very apostle John ministered there as well. As a matter of fact, some commentators tell us that after he was, uh, after his exile on Patmos was done, was over, uh, he went back to the city of Ephesus. He went back to that church. And so this church, again, had just great men ministering there. Also, uh, other men who were not so prominent in the New Testament were there. On, uh, 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 I'm gonna, I'm not, I'm, I don't know if I say his name right. On, uh, I'm not going to say it. Tychicus uh, was then another gentleman. Onesiphorus, I'm sorry. But Onesiphorus was ministering there as well. So you have these five very significant individuals in the history of this church. But what else is interesting is this, is that this church also had its share of what we might say villains. Uh, there were many uh, who were, who were uh, a counter to the gospel uh, that were found there as well. Men such as men such as Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, uh, Hermogenes was there as well. And so there was much by way of conflict there in the church. But what was commendable about this particular church is that they were able to stave off some of the effects of these false teachers. And again, we'll, we'll develop that here shortly as well. So the church at Ephesus was a very, very important church. It was a, it was a church that was very gifted. It was a church, again, that uh, had much going forth. But the next thing I want you to consider here is the, is the character of Christ himself. And this is my primary point in, the first, in, in our first point. Christ presents himself to this church in a particular way. He presents himself, as I said before, as the one who holds the seven stars and who walks among the candlesticks. I have to admit, I see something of Christ's ministry as the good shepherd at this point. Here is Christ again examining his, 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 his flock. Here is Christ again keeping his flock safe. Here is Christ doing everything necessary. You might remember when our Lord Jesus Christ, when we said there in chapter 1, how, he was, how, he, how uh, John uh, described him. He had that, that long uh, flowing uh, white garment with the, go with the golden uh, girdle that went about his chest. And we said that that was his priestly robes. It also had an element of, of a judicial character to it as well. And I think this is how we see Christ functioning here in this church. He is functioning both as a priest, ministering to these churches. He is functioning again as one who is examining these churches. And so here is our Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry to the church. And this ministry to his church goes on. As I said before, this is not just something that we look in the, in, in the past and say that's what Christ did then. No, Christ's ministry still goes on in the church today. There is still a sense in which the church is secure in Christ. There's more than a sense of that. There's a, there's a sense in which Christ is examining. He's walking through. He's walking among his churches. And as he walks among the churches, what does he see? He sees the love that's in there. And sometimes this love is commendable. And sometimes this love is waning. But our Lord Jesus Christ is always drawing these ones who have this love for him back to himself. And so our Lord's ministry there. Again, this idea, we have to make note of it. Our Lord Jesus Christ is holding the seven stars. And this does speak of the security, particularly here of the angels, the pastors, the ministers. Christ is holding them in his hand. But also that nearness to Christ, if I can say it this way, also has much to do by way of accountability and responsibility. The angel, the minister, the, the pastor in the hand of Christ. And that nearness and that closeness, again, brings with it a certain amount of responsibility. This idea that all those who get close to God, again, there's, there's something to be said there by way of great blessing, but also by way of awesome responsibility as well. And so here is Christ again, this one who presents himself in this exalted character, holding the seven stars, walking among the seven golden candlesticks. And one more thing I want you to see here. Notice there again in verse 2, he describes himself in verse 1, then he says here in verse 2, I know thy works. And there's a reason why I want to consider this under the character of Christ as opposed to the condition of the church or the commendation of the church. We can do both, but I want you to see it under the character of Christ. And this is the reason why. Our Lord Jesus Christ says to every one of these churches, I know thy works. And here what we see is the omniscience of our Lord Jesus Christ looking and understanding and knowing everything about his church. He knows the spiritual state of his churches. He knows the conditions of the hearts of those who are in it. He knows the works of the church. He knows what is lacking in the church. He knows not only the church by way of its collective identity, he knows the church by way of its individual members as well. And Christ says to you, I know your works. And Christ says to you, I know your labors. And Christ says to you, I know your patience. You see, Christ again knows his, his sheep. Christ knows his churches. 
And so in this passage of Scripture, the first thing that we have in front of us is the character of Christ. It's an exalted view of him. He presents himself, as I said last week, and everything by way of his exalted glory, his mediatorial glory, functioning both as priest and now also as some having, having a judicial character about him as well. But our Lord Jesus Christ, again, to the church. And so these are the things that we see in this passage of Scripture concerning Christ and his, and his ministry to the church. Well, the second thing I want you to see here now, and this is going to take us down from verses 2 uh, to 4, and then we're going to pick up verse 6. The second thing I want you to see here now is Christ's commendation of this church. This church was, a, as I said before, it was a very, very significant church. This church had much going for it. This church, in a very real way, I'm going to say to you that, that I, it, I, I stumble to say this because uh, I stumble to say this, but this church was such a church that many people would, we can almost hear some people saying, well, if, if it had that much going for it, why are you even making mention of anything that it had wrong? It had so much going. There were nine specific things that our Lord Jesus Christ mentions by way of being commendable. And that one, however, that one great serious lack that they had and it reminds us of what we learned in our series in, in 1 Corinthians 13. I can speak with the tongues of men and angels. I can have all faith to move mountains. I can give my body to be burned. But if I have not love, it profits me nothing. If I have not love, I am nothing, Paul says. And so this, this need for love is, 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 is essential. But let's take a look at the, the, how our Lord Jesus commends this church. He commends them for the following nine things. He makes mention of their labor. He makes mention of their, of their patience. He makes mention, and this will be surprising to us in our day, he makes mention of their intolerance for evil and evildoers. Surprising in our day that that would be commended. He makes mention of their testing of the false apostles. He makes mention of their bearing up in persecution, their patience in trial. He, he mentions twice the fact of their work and their labor. He mentions the fact that they faint not in any of this. And he mentions also, lastly there in verse 6, that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And this will be important because the Nicolaitans, they represented a particular, not only a doctrinal deviation, but a doctrinal deviation that led to a moral and ethical deviation as well. These were men, again, this was a group of men, a group of teachers that were allowing immoralities into the church. We'll get to that shortly. But I want you to see here that there's much to commend in this church. And it does, like I says, I, I'm going to say it again this way. I hesitate to say it. It gives me pause to even mention this. But you know how people think in our day. So if nine things are going good, why would you mention one bad thing? And I want you to see again here, our Lord Jesus Christ knows what he's doing. He realizes the essential nature of love. And to fail there is to fail at the most essential matter. And we can have everything going for us as a church by way of externals. And many of these things are vital. Many of these things must be happening. As a matter of fact, I would even suggest to you that these things that mark this church should be the things that mark our church, with the exception that we should make sure that our love is where it should be. But oh, that we would be a church that would be active in our labor, that we would be a church that would be able to bear up patiently under any kind of hardship, that we would be a church that would be intolerant of evil and evildoers, that we would be a church that would be able to test teachers and false teachers, false apostles, that we would be a church that would be able to bear up under persecution. All these things, they are marks of a church, again, that, that it has much grace upon it. And so there are these things that were commended. I think it's interesting that when we look at these nine things, that we can find them kind of broken down into three, but better yet, probably four categories. And what's interesting about this is that you see these categories, and the categories are as follows. We have a commendation for a doctrinal category. We have a commendation for an ethical category. We have commendations for practical Matters, and we have accommodation for their Christological view or their Christological their, their, or their understanding of, of what they were doing for Christ. And so these categories, and what's interesting about this is that these categories kind of remind us, if you're familiar with 1 John, kind of remind us of what we see in 1 John by way of the test of life. There's a sense in which there's a doctrinal matter that must be addressed. There's a sense in which there are ethical matters that must be addressed. There's a sense in which the view of Christ is primary there in 1 John. 
And so again, this, this, this categorizing, I think, is very helpful here. And let me suggest to you the following categories then, again, to repeat them to you. First, they were commended for their doctrinal awareness, we might say. We have this again in verse 2. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them to be false, or found them to be liars in the King James. There are a number of passages that support this idea. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Again, we were talking about 1 John. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits to see whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. This is the perennial challenge, the, the perennial threat to the church of Jesus Christ, that falsehood would enter in. Acts chapter 17, again, verse 11, you know the great passage concerning the Bereans. They were more noble. Why? Because they searched the scriptures to see whether or not the things that Paul was saying was true. In 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions the, the inroads that false apostles had made. For 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. This still goes on. Paul's final and parting admonition to the, to the church at Ephesus there in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. For this I know that after my departed, departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And so for this church to have this doctrinal awareness, to have these doctrinal guards up, to be able to be able to discern and to be able to be able to judge and evaluate those who came in claiming they were apostles or those who came in claiming they were teachers. You see, this is essential to the, to the health and the well-being of a church, and Christ commends them for that. Christ didn't say, you're too critical. Christ didn't say, why are you being so particular in this matter? He didn't say that. He commended this church for this. And so again, their first commendation, I would suggest to you, was, was a doctoral uh, commendation. The second commendation that they noticed for was ethical. And this has to do with uh, that little phrase there that we see, I believe it's in, in, uh, in verse... Um, in, uh, in verse uh, 2 here, where, where, uh, where, where we read the following, Thou canst not bear them which are, which are evil. The NIV puts it this way, you cannot tolerate, you cannot tolerate evildoers. You cannot tolerate, imagine that, an intolerant church. An intolerant church, a church intolerant of evil, being commended by Jesus. We have people today in churches that tell us that Jesus would never do anything like that. They make that the, the, the mainstay of their ministry. This is how they identify themselves. And so I want you to see and understand something here. Christ is commending this church for something that the world would condemn them for. Things don't change, do they? And so here again was this ethical category that they were being faithful to. And the other thing that we see here by way of their ethical, and this is kind of, this reaches over into the doctrinal as well, but I'm going to place it here in the ethical, is that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Why am I putting this into the ethical category? Because one of the things that we... Well, let me say this. The Nicolaitans are a very interesting group in Scripture. And the reason why they're interesting is because you can't read anything about the Nicolaitans without reading this. We know very little about the Nicolaitans. It's, it's kind of it's one of these interesting things. But one of the things that we can gather and glean from the Nicolaitans as we see how they are mentioned to one of the other churches, as we see how they are connected with the doctrine that's connected with Jezebel, what we begin to see and understand is that these individuals were of that stripe of libertines or libertarians that were, that were introducing loose moral uh, 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 codes within the church. There was a moving away from holiness. There was, again, this idea that, 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 that our freedom in Christ allowed us to live in ways that were contrary to Christ. And again, this is antithetical to the very work of the gospel. I've said it like this, you know, if you're, and I hate to use this term this way, but I will. If your religion doesn't make you a better person, what good is it? If your faith in Christ does not express itself in holiness and conformity to Christ, what good is it? And so these Nicolaitans, again, they were ones that, that allowed these things to come into the church. Let me say this, again, they were, again, I, I've said it this way, they were intolerant of evil. Now, we can't, we can't close our eyes to the fact that intolerance, in one sense, has been a, a blight on humanity. Uh, man's uh, inhumanity to man uh, has, uh, sometimes is just too apparent and too readily seen. And so we have to know how to 
properly gauge and, and bring this all into proper perspective. So let me say it this way. I think that Paul helps us here in the way that he deals with the sinning brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And let me just read there. You can turn there if you want, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to be reading from verses 9 through 13. Paul says this, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or with the the extortioners, or with the idolaters. For then, and this is the key, for then you must needs go out of the world. See, you're never going to be separate from, 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 from people like this. This is people that are in the world. He says, but now I have written to you, not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or a covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner would such a one know not to eat. And what Paul is saying is this, listen, we know the world we live in is a fallen world. We know that by way of our daily interaction, we're going to be rubbing shoulders with people that probably we don't have spiritually or morally anything in common with. But there we are with them. And so Paul is saying, look, I understand. You're not, it's, it's not like you can be completely separate from that. But in the church... But in the church, it should not be. And Paul goes on to write this. For what have I to do to judge them that are, that, that are that, I'm sorry, for what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do you not judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And so what, what, uh, what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, look, church discipline had to be enacted. There was sin in the church. And it wasn't like, again, this is Paul was saying, don't go out into the world and, and engage the world. I mean, we have to do this. But in the church, these things should not be. And again, this is what is so, and I will say it this way, this is what is so heartbreaking when churches in our day adopt the morality of the age. It's the saddest thing that you can see. It's a mark of severe defection, apostasy from the truth. And again, so we have to understand that while this church is commended for the way in which they handle these false teachers, these men who bring in these immoral practices or allow for these immoral practices, they're commended for that. And so while the the Apostle Paul is saying that that his point is that we, we can't separate from people of the world this way, let's also not forget this, what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, uh, again, how that bad company corrupts good morals. You know, so we have, we do have to, we have, we have to be careful as to who we associate with in our, in, in our, in our, in our personal and public lives. We understand that. We can't be, we, we can't be impacted by, by a worldview that runs counter to the scripture. But again, Paul's point is this, listen, when we're out in the world, we're going to, you, you know, our, the people you work with are going to be people that morally you wouldn't necessarily care for. The people, and when I say that, I don't mean that you're that you're uh, unnecessarily hostile toward, toward them. I mean that you're just not going to allow them to affect the way that you live. You're going to live for Christ, and so again, we have to understand that there is a, an impact that bad company has on the morals that we hold to, and on the uh, and on the lives that we are trying to live. The point that's being made in the Book of Revelation here is that by way of what's happening in the church. Those moral failures are not to be allowed in the church, and if they are brought, if they're in the church, the individual is, call, is, is to be called is to be called to repentance and then restoration. So there was the doctrinal matter. There was the ethical category. Thirdly, there was the practical category, and this is where we see by way of their labor and their love. I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience. Thou hast labored and not fainted. Over and over again, there's this mention to, to their activity, and this idea of this idea of works, labor, and patience are something that we see in other places in Scripture as well. First Thessalonians chapter one verse three, Paul says this: I remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. And so again, this uh, these combination of these three things occur in other places in the scripture. And again, our Lord is commending them for that. But the last category I want you to see here, and it's an important category, is that they did all this, and this kind of catches us a little bit. They did all this for the sake of Christ. Notice there, I think it's in verse 3 where we have this. At verse 3, and thou hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake, and hast labored and hast not fainted. I want you to see something, that even though this church was experiencing uh, a a diminishing in their love for Christ, everything they were doing was for Christ. It wasn't just for their church to be the the most noted church in in the community. It wasn't just so that that anything about themselves would be front and center. They were actually engaged in this for the cause of Christ. 
And this is something that's uh, kind of insightful to see. Because what we're seeing here is this. That there can be much that is done for Christ that is not wrong in and of itself. As I said before, these things ought to be done. But because there was this loss and this, and this diminishing of their love for Christ, this had to be addressed. I want to say one more thing about their, about their, uh, their faithfulness to Christ in this regard. And it's this. Uh, here they were, again, ex- experiencing much by way of difficulty. You read that 19th chapter of Acts. Again, they were, uh, there, 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 was a, there, were a, there was a lot of difficulty that came upon the professing church because they were upsetting the cart at that day. They were upsetting the religious world. They were upsetting the economic world at that time. And the outside world brought much by way of difficulty on them. But yet for the cause of Christ, they stayed faithful. They had these individuals coming in teaching these, 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 these corrupt doctrines, yet they stayed faithful. And the point that I want you to see is this. It's not easy to stand against, against evil and falsehood in a day in which Christ calls us to faithfulness. But that's what we're called to. We are called to be faithful to Christ in our day, even as this Ephesian church was called in that day as well. In that day as well. Well, again, that's their commendation. Four categories, nine specific things, four categories we can drop them into. The next thing I want you to see now is that not, not now we move from the commendation of our Lord Jesus Christ to the critique that our Lord gives. And let me say this, that we should not in any way think that we would avoid or we would not be uh, the, uh, the focus of a critique of our Lord by our Lord. Our Lord has every right, of course, to critique us. And I hope you know and understand that as you and I read through the scriptures, as we interact with one another, as scripture is brought to bear on our conscience and our thinking, oftentimes Christ will reprove us. Oftentimes, shortcomings will be seen in our conversations, one with another, bringing Scripture to bear. We see, again, places maybe where we need to make adjustments. And so, again, this idea of Christ critiquing the church is not something that should be foreign to us. We should not shy away from these things. And here is the critique that Christ offers to this church. It's a memorable passage, isn't it? We see it there in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Before we move on to the particulars of this critique, I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice, number one, that it's a gentle reproof and not an overbearing reproof. It's a gentle reproof. The King James brings this out particularly. It says, nevertheless, you have all this going, but nevertheless. You're doing all these things right, but nevertheless, let me say this. So it's a gentle reproof that's given. It's a reproof, but it's gentle. The second thing I want you to see is that this reproof or this critique is bookended by commendation. We have eight commendations there in verses verses 2 through 4. And then we have that ninth commendation there in verse 5, I believe it is. We have, uh, 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 I'm sorry, in verse verse 6 we have it. And that commendation is this. Once again, thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So notice how Christ is critiquing his church. He's doing it in a way that shows all the tenderness that he possesses as a shepherd, doesn't it? it should, he does it in a way that brings to, to, to our thinking and to our mind everything by way of, the aware, of his awareness of who and what we are as individuals and in, in, as a church. But Christ, as I said before, he is not, bru- he is not breaking the bruised reed. He is, not, he is not quenching the smoking flax. He's tenderly coming alongside this church and encouraging it. He tenderly comes alongside of you and he tenderly comes alongside of me. And he encourages us in the way that we ought to go. Yes, there may be things that Christ puts his finger on. And may he do it more and more. May our sensitivity to the work of the Spirit of God within us be such that we take no offense at these things. That we don't fall into this thing. Why? I'm doing, that. I'm doing, so, I'm doing all this right. And you're going you're gonna to call me out on this one thing? May that be far from us. And so again, here is our Lord Jesus Christ. It, like I said before, it's a memorable passage. Thou hast left thy first love. It reminds us of a passage in the Old Testament where God bemoans the fact that Israel was defecting in her love for God. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth. And this is the classic little phrase, The love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. The love of thine espousals. There you were, there we were in this relationship of love, having all of the excitement of, 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 of being new and fresh and, 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 and things that was, it was just invaluable. And now as time has gone on, what has happened to it? We Sadly, we know this not only in our religious or spiritual life, we know this in our own personal lives as well, do we not? 
can I be very, very careful here, but can I say this? And I'm speaking especially now to the men, to the husbands here. Man, do, do our wives know that we love them to the same degree, if not a greater degree, now than what we did when we were first married? Are, the, are, they, are, are those emphasis the, of, of, of our espousals still fresh in your ears? Would they say maybe many things about us, but they wouldn't say that our love is, is diminishing? They might say, yeah, he's a, he makes a mess and he doesn't do this, he does, but he loves me. And ladies, let me say this. You, you, or you may know just how much it means to your husband when he knows that you know that you love him. Men, let's make sure that we convey that. But there's nothing like it. And to know that Christ loves his church and to know that Christ loves you. Let him deal with us as we are because he's not doing it to destroy us. He's doing it to draw us back to himself. And so again, here is this love that our Lord Jesus Christ noticed when it, when it begins to diminish, even as God the Father noticed it in the, in the people of Israel. So how do we explain this first love that our Lord noticed this defection from? How do we explain it? Well, let me say this. I do think there's a sense in which we shouldn't be afraid to say that it did have emotional and affective elements to it. I know that so oftentimes when we define love, we want to be very careful not to define love in a way that is just emotion. I would agree wholeheartedly with that because love isn't just emotion. But love does have this emotional element to it, doesn't it? There are these tugs on the heart concerning love. There is the reality of being lovesick. Now, don't get me wrong, because I'm not, you know, I'm not like the the most romantic guy around, but these things are true. I remember years and years ago, probably maybe 30 or maybe 35 years ago, me and my first pastor, we were going, we were actually driving down to Carlisle to go to the Banner of Truth bookstore. And uh, we were all excited about it, had our books lined up that we wanted to get. We were stopping at uh, used bookstores along the way. And we got maybe about, I don't know, I don't think we were two or three hours from home. And uh, Pastor Maria, you know, God bless him, God bless his wife. His wife's name was Fanny, Fanny Maria. We're driving, and Pastor says, after about two hours, he says, oh, he says, I miss Fanny. I'm thinking to myself, Pastor, we've only been gone a couple hours. What are you talking about? But here was this man. Again, at the time, he had to be probably in his 70s. His love for his wife. And let me say this. We, so uh, the reason why I'm bringing that out is to say this, that however else we describe this love here in Revelation chapter 2, it does have emotive and affective elements to it. It isn't just, again, about doing the right thing, because they were doing the right thing. But the love was being, but again, but the note, but there was that awareness that that love was, was, was diminishing. So how would we see this love marked? I think one of the ways that we could see it marked, I think it would include something of that mindset of Mary Magdalene when she saw Jesus on the morning of the resurrection. You remember that? She fell and she embraced his feet. She looks into the grave, into the tomb. She doesn't know. She, 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 uh, she sees that he's not there. She hears a voice behind him, and she doesn't know who the voice is. And there's such love, such, such movement of her emotions. That what does she say? Show me where he's at, and I'll take him out there. It doesn't matter. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll do it myself. The love she had. I think as well that we can see the woman in the Pharisee's house, that sinful woman in the Pharisee's house. You remember her, right? Luke 7, verses 36 and 38. One of the Pharisees desired that he would come and eat with them. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in that city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meet in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and then wiped them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. I think this love for Christ that he's looking for has to include that. And then he says, remember when the, when the Pharisee takes issue, and again, are you ever convicted in Scripture when you read the Scripture and you see like the bad guy in the, in, the, in the narrative, kind of like you're more like the bad guy than you are the good guy in the narrative? I hate to say it, I can easily see myself saying, whoa, 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 what's going on? You know, oh, you know, but what does our Lord say? Luke 7, 47, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. So I'm saying to you that this love for Christ involves the totality of who we are. 
and all of our regenerate and all of our regenerate state, that this grace that God is working in us does contain this love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, this is, I think, one of the ways in which we can see this love. I think another way in which we should understand this love is what we saw there earlier in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. This love of sincerity. Again, listen to it from the King James once again. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Listen to how the ESV puts it. Grace be to all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That word incorruptible is kind of interesting. I looked, up, I looked at it up in a, in a, in a lexicon uh, this morning as I was just kind of fit, finalizing things. And it, and, and it has the idea of, of incorruption, unable to be corrupted. And I thought to myself, it's love that's hermetically sealed. It's love that's hermetically sealed from all the corrupting influences of the world. That's the kind of love that the Apostle Paul is calling us to. And that brings us to a very important element. Because how is it that love diminishes in the life of the Christian? How is it that it begins to wane? What I would say to you then is this, is we see the reasons for this on the, by way of the, the teaching of our Lord. You remember the passage where he says in Matthew 24, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. When iniquity abounds, when, when we're careless in our, in our spiritual lives, when we find ourselves immersed more and more in a culture where sin is more and more increasing, it's always a challenge to our love for Christ. If you go back to that passage of scripture in Jeremiah, that second chapter of Jeremiah, not only is that passage kind of famous, the, the love of thine espousals, but there's another kind of famous passage of scripture in Jeremiah chapter 2. And it's that passage of scripture, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, and they have hewn out for themselves cisterns which cannot hold water. And I want you to see something there. Whenever there is a defection from Christ, there is a drawing towards something else. And what was problematic in the, for the people of, uh, of Jeremiah's day was that they were just kind of, they were, I don't, I don't want to overspeak, they were just kind of done with God, as it were. And they would not stay in a, in a, in a morally or a spiritually neutral state. They would be attracted to something. And so again, what they were attracted to was that which was false. This reminds us of another passage of scripture there in, in Matthew chapter 24. Again, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Again, do you understand how important this is when we ask ourselves the question, how did this love wane? Well, again, it's the increase of iniquity outside of us and a growing carelessness inside of us. To be careless in the watchfulness of our souls never ends up well. And so these things that we see here. Jonathan Edwards uh, has, a, uh, has a sermon uh, on this uh, passage of Scripture. And he goes on to give some pretty biting evaluations of how we know when our love is waning. And again, these things, we should, we should hear them and heed them. He says this, he says, first, he says, when a people grow cold and dead in respect to religion, we would say in our day, in respect of spiritual things, the things that concern Christ, there, is gen there, there, uh, there generally is little or said about it. In other words, the things of Christ no longer become the focus of our, of our, of our speech, the focus of our conversation. I'm guilty of this myself sometimes. I hate to say it when I'm about, when I'm about to say you know, we gather together after our worship services and, and how quickly our conversation turns to other matters than the things of Christ. I'm as guilty of it as you are. I hate to say it. And it reminds me again of the need for this passage of Scripture in my own life as well as all of us. We're going to have our little refreshments. And just notice, now, now you're all going to be probably making sure that you don't turn the conversation. But again, just notice in general how it happens. Normally, how's work going you know, how are things going? How are things with your, you know, your this relative or that relative? And again, it's not, it's not that those things shouldn't be done. But the point that Edwards is making is that when love is waning, we see more and more of that. He goes on to say this. He says, he says, when a people decline and grow cold in spiritual things or the things of Christ, there is a decay in the outward attention to the things that Christ calls us to. And he's talking about what we would call like the means of grace. And so when there is a diminishing of the love of Christ, so oftentimes it marks or manifests itself in we're not, we're not in the place of worship as much anymore. We're not, we're not gathering for, for prayer as much anymore. 
We're not giving ourselves over to those personal uh, responsibilities that we have by way of either time in prayer, personal prayer, or the reading of Scripture. These things begin to leave off, you see. And so Edwards, again, is putting his finger on these things. He goes to say this, when a, when a people grow, grow cold and dead in religion, immoralities are wont to prevail. And this was the great challenge there because of the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They were bringing in, again, this, uh, this, 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 this immoral, this, and again, they were, they were dressing up immorality in the name of religion. And so again, these matters here. And so here we see all these marks of decay. And so what is Christ's counsel to the church? And we're going to pick up on this, we're going to pick up on this uh, uh, next Lord's Day and really develop it. What is Christ's counsel to his church? Notice what we have here in verse, in, verse, uh, in verse 7. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Uh, I'm sorry, um, ver, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 5. Notice what Christ's counsel to the church is. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. And then in verse 7, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So how do we correct this declining love if we are guilty of it? How do we make sure that our love is increased? Notice what our Lord Jesus Christ says. He says, repent, number one. He says, remember, number two. He says, do the first works, number three. And he calls for repentance again. And then lastly, he says this, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Next week, we're going to develop verses five and seven. But let me just leave off this for today to prepare us for next week. How do we correct this, 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 this diminishing of love if we are experiencing that? How do we correct it? We correct it by pleading with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Heavenly Father to give us greater measures of His Spirit upon us. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. If you being evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more shall your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is a spiritual work that we're called to. This is a spiritual duty that we're called to. It can only be done by way of a spiritual work upon our souls. And so whatever we will say next week by way of repenting, and whatever we can say next week by way of remembering, and whatever we can say next week by way of doing, and again, it's very interesting, none of those counsels that Christ gives to his church are emotional counsels. He doesn't say feel better about it. He calls us to do specific things. Now, this is one of the reasons why I emphasize that, that emotional and that affective element of love because I don't want you to miss it. And just like right now, I don't want you to miss that the only way that we can do what he calls us to do is through the grace of the Spirit of God upon us. And so as we get ready to close here and as we prepare for our sermon for next week, well, it won't be next week, we'll be selling, we'll be, uh We'll be uh, celebrating the Lord's resurrection next week. But the week after that, I want you to see and I want you to understand that Christ gives to us counsel as to how our diminishing love can be restor restored to the fervor that we had with him when we first came to know him by faith. My brothers and sisters, can I say this in closing? Let us love the Lord Jesus Christ with sincere and true hearts because he notices Every element, of, uh, every element of declension, and he, and he loves to see hearts in flame for him. Well, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in this passage of Scripture. Give us grace, we pray, Lord God, yes, to do those things which are commendable, but give us even greater grace, Lord God, to not fall into that sin of losing our love for our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.